The belief of extraterrestrial life is one of the most exotic, exciting and long endearing throughout human history. Mars, in particular, has always proven to be of particular interest. One of our nearest planetary neighbours, the Red Planet has inspired thousands of works ranging from the earliest science fiction all the way to contemporary fringe theology. In the late 19th century, interest in the planet saw a boom as astronomers battled with one another over their beliefs of the existence of a great Martian civilization, creating a scientific debate that crossed over into far more fringe elements. Spiritualism, with its equal boom, became far more interested in the interstellar than one might expect, and one case in particular of a young Swiss medium named Catherine Elise Muller would charge out in front, presenting the world with not only surreal images of the hypercolour Martian landscape, but with descriptions of an alien society and a working language to boot. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark Histories, Season 6, Episode 9. I'm Ben, the host as always. I hope this episode finds you very well. So, I've got a a bit of a, a correction to make from last week's episode. So before we get started, I think it's probably time to address that. I, th- I believe in my intro last week, I used the phrase... Uh, that I think I was talking about New Yorkers going over to uh, New Jersey to stretch their legs. And that was what I meant to say. What I actually said was spread their legs. Um, a few people, quite a few people, uh, emailed me to tell me how I, they believed I'd probably misspoken there. Um, yes, you're completely right. I absolutely meant uh, stretch their legs. Um, most people seem to take it, um, you know, found it quite humorous, I think. Um, a few people uh, found it quite offensive, I think. Um, so, you know, if you are one of those people that found it offensive, um, apologies. It was it was just completely misspoken. Uh, weirdly, it was actually in my script and I I wrote that script, obviously, and then read it back, like in my head when I read it. Then I read it back aloud whilst I was recording it. And I listened to it whilst I was editing it. And I listened to it again to check the episode before it went out. And in all of that time, I not once thought that I'd misspoken. And then as soon as someone said to me, um, I think you've misspoken there. That's, the, you know, that's the wrong phrase. It was almost like I'd been blind to it, like blinkered to it and like had my blinkers taken off. And I was like, oh, my God, what have I done? You know, like, how have I missed that? Um, it was a very weird feeling. But anyway, um, yeah. Apologies for that. I I absolutely did misspeak. It was definitely meant to be stretching their legs, <laughs> taking a walk, doing a bit of exercise. That's about it. Um, yeah. So yeah, that that's a little correction for last week's episode. Outside of that, just give you a quick reminder um, for the Ask Me Anything episode that I'm going to do next month for the fifth anniversary Dark Histories. Um, if you want to get your questions in, um, that'd be really cool. Uh, Basically, if you can do it, can do it on social media or through the email. Um, links to all of those ways you can contact me are are in the um, show notes. Uh, and yeah, if you can get those in by the end of the month, like so, we'll say like first of July as like a deadline. That'd be cool. Um, already got some really good questions um, that I'm really looking forward to answering, um, and some some really interesting questions actually about just how I make the episodes. But yeah, if you want to ask me anything. Um, go ahead and do so uh by the end of this month that will be 
awesome. So with that out of the way, let's crack on with this week's episode. It's called Catherine Elise Muller and her mission to Mars. Perseverance, the Mars rover that landed on Mars in 2021, marks the most up-to-date advancement of humans' fascination with the Red Planet. Though interest throughout history has waxed and waned in arcs as wide as the planet's own orbit, its existence has largely served to fuel our desire for something else, another world that exists outside of our own. In 1996, when a meteorite found over a decade prior was investigated by a group of scientists who claimed they had found microscopic fossils inside the rock, excitement rocketed globally as headlines exclaimed, yes, there really was, or at least there had been, life on Mars. It was a brief flirtation of interest with the planet that's popped up again and again throughout history. In the 1890s, almost exactly a century earlier, Mars had been the talk of the town, and the long debate over the existence of extraterrestrial life was being firmly answered in popularist circles as fledgling science fiction ignited the public imagination. The ancient Greeks were the first to discuss the possibilities of life on the other planets, though they couldn't quite decide if that life were on an infinite amount of unseen worlds or limited to the planets in the observable universe. In the end, Aristotle won out and neither were right. The Earth was considered unique in the universe with no room for life to exist anywhere else. This was a viewpoint largely backed up and expanded upon by the incoming religious Christian philosophers who pointed out that the uniqueness of Christ, along with the fact that the universe was created for man alone, was enough to pop the question of extraterrestrial life firmly away for good. Things pretty much stayed that way throughout the medieval period, right up until the Copernican Revolution, that saw the fundamental shift in belief that the sun was at the centre of the universe rather than the Earth. Observations of planets through telescopes by people like Galileo and Kepler, whose work describing things like mountains on the moon helps people to imagine worlds in the universe much like the Earth, despite the non-belief in extraterrestrial life that they held themselves. The 17th century bestseller, Conversations on the Plurality of Worlds, published by French novelist Bernard de Fontenelle in 1686, utilised the argument heavily to suggest that if other worlds were similar in geographical features, then they should be similar in ways that included life too. Whilst religious arguments still dominated the general worldview, concepts of extraterrestrial life began to creep into the popular imagination, and science slowly began to warm to the idea. By the end of the 17th century, several highly influential astronomy books had been published that supported the argument. The planets were being observed, mapped, sketched and described with a fantastic enthusiasm for the new science, and Mars, as the Earth's neighbouring planet, naturally became the subject of much interest. Observations of shaded areas around the poles stirred the imagination as the planet's rotation, seasons and polar caps were all studied considered and theorised upon with varying degrees of success. In the 18th century, famed astronomer William Herschel, whose name was used in the Manbat's moon hoax, had studied the planet enough to suggest that it had a dense atmosphere and more than likely enjoyed a situation in many respects similar to ours. The American astronomer Benjamin Gould was the first to take photos of Mars in 1879 and though it was a decidedly fledgling art at the time, the photos went some way in forwarding the theories of existence and habits of the Martian polar ice caps. 
The emergence of Darwinism in the late 1800s dealt a brief blow to the belief in the existence of extraterrestrial life for a short while, as scientists began to doubt the possibility of other planets holding sufficient resources to support the emergence of intelligent life. As the ideas of Darwinism took hold, however, another seed had been germinating within scientific circles after an Italian astronomer, Giovanni Schiaparelli, had observed a series of scars on the surface of Mars that he dubbed channels. Wrongly translating the word into English as canals, the observation stirred up a new argument for life on other planets caused by the allusion to an intelligently created structure that the word stirred up. Before long, thought had mutated along with the translation and the scars were soon being described as a complex system of intelligent design. With the public interest in astronomy and Mars in particular, on a constant climb, it was only natural that the world of fiction should reflect the fascination of life on other planets, and in 1880, Percy Gregg published Across the Zodiac, a science fiction novel that did just that. Framed as a sort of prototype of the found footage genre, it detailed the supposedly real account of the protagonist, known only as Colonel A, and his flight to Mars in a ship that resembled a Dutch East Indiaman, except his ship was constructed of metal walls that were three feet thick and travelled through the sky at 1100 miles per minute, rather than being made of wood and bobbing about in the ocean. After landing on Mars and discovering a breathable atmosphere on the planet's surface that Colonel A described to be similar to that of Earth at 16,000 feet, Greg's adventurer set out on a trip of discovery on a world with a pale green sky and before long had his first meeting with a Martian. He was about 4 feet 8 or 9 inches in height, with legs that seemed short in proportion to the length and girth of the body, but only because, as was apparent on more careful scrutiny, the chest was proportionately both longer and wider than in our race. Otherwise, he greatly resembled the fairer families of the Aryan breed, the Swede or German. The yellow hair, unshaven beard, whiskers and moustache were all close and short. The dress consisted of a sort of blouse and short pantaloons of some soft woven fabric and of a vermilion colour. The head was protected from the rays of an equatorial sun by a species of light turban, from which hung down a short shade or veil sheltering the neck and forehead. His bare feet were guarded by sandals of some flexible material, just covering the toes and bound round the ankle by a single thong. He carried no weapon, not even a staff, and I therefore felt that there was no immediate danger from him. On seeing me, he started as with intense surprise and not a little alarm, and turned to run. The size and length of his limbs, however, gave me immense advantage in this respect, and in less than a minute, I had come up with and laid my hand upon him. These martialists, as Greg calls them, were a bunch of communist-leaning polygamists that could not bring themselves to believe in life on other planets, taking Kern away for a deranged country bumpkin though this doesn't stop him marrying one of them in the end. Greg's book is interesting for a couple of reasons. Firstly, he coined the word astronaut, which was the name of Kernaway's spaceship, and secondly, it was the first science fiction novel to attempt to detail another worldly language, complete with grammatical terminology. In the earliest fiction concerning Mars, Martians were fairly similar to humans though they seem to have an uncanny ability to create a utopian lifestyle. As the century progressed, however, the creatures slowly started to shift and the introduction of elephant trunks, unicorn horns and giant heads 
were all grafted onto the increasingly unhuman-like figures. At the same time, American astronomer Percival Lowell was busy publishing his own controversial research on Mars from his private observatory in Arizona. By the 1890s, plenty of astronomers had extrapolated upon Schiaparelli's earlier channel theories. Optical illusions and dried up rivers had both caught some traction, but it was Lowell's work that captured the popularist imagination. Lowell had mapped hundreds of lines on the surface of Mars and he was convinced that they were intelligently designed and constructed canals used by a Martian civilization to carry water. His theories saw him largely ostracized by the scientific community, but his talent as a speaker and popularity with the non-specialist readers fired his work into the spotlight and teed up a generation of science fiction writers for decades to come, including H.G. Wells, who published the infamous War of the Worlds in 1897. But it wasn't just the astronomers and science fiction writers who were theorising on life outside of Earth. One of the stranger marriages of interest in the late 19th century was that of the astronomers and the spiritualists. Whilst Lowell was pushing his theories on the American side of the Atlantic, astronomer and hard-boiled spiritualist Camille Flammarion was going all out in France with theories that made Lowell seem positively dull. Like Lowell, Flammarion had a dramatic and exciting way with words that inspired his audiences, many of whom would never touch a telescope in their lives, and as such, Flammarion invited them to engage with their imaginations. Unlike Lowell, however, Flammarion studied spiritualism almost as much as he studied Mars, and the two areas routinely crossed over in his work. Convinced by Lowell's canal theories, he believed that the planet was in its dying throes and that the canals were likely an attempt by an intelligent species to keep their habitat alive. He also believed in the reports of spiritualist mediums that had claimed to travel to Mars through a form of astral projection and who, upon their arrival, were greeted by utopian societies of well-groomed, well-mannered posh folk, similar to humans but without the rough edges. He was so confident of this truth that in 1891 he announced a prize of 100,000 francs payable to anyone who could find the means of communicating with another planet and of receiving a response. Designs were drawn up and eccentric machines devised, but it wasn't only engineers and astronomers that began working on communicating with Mars. Throughout the 1890s, Swiss psychology professor Theodore Flournoy undertook an extensive case study of a medium named Catherine Elise Muller who counted automatic writing amongst her most dramatic skills. If automatic writing wasn't interesting enough by itself, her claim that it was the writing of a Martian language was certainly a fascinating boon. Born on December 9, 1861, Catherine Elise Muller grew up in modest surroundings in the multicultural city of Geneva, perched on the very edge of the border between Switzerland and France. Her father was a Hungarian merchant, whilst her mother raised the children at home. The third of four children, she had two older brothers and a younger sister born four years after herself, though her sister failed to survive childhood, dying when she was just three years old. Catherine's upbringing was fairly unremarkable, and she was known to have been a quiet, timid child, afraid of the dark, and preferring to stay at home with her mother rather than make friends of her own age. She spent the hours of her free time sitting by her mother's side learning embroidery in the solace of the family home, a situation that caused her mother to foster concerns that Catherine was not a particularly happy child. In 
As for Catherine, she said that she had always felt an isolated disconnect from her family, which at one point led her to asking her parents if she had been adopted or had been the product of a mix-up at the hospital. Like many teenagers, she felt different from the rest of her siblings and claimed that she felt feelings of homesickness that she could never quite put her finger on. One example of this came when her father, a prodigious polyglot who spoke Hungarian, German, French, Spanish and Italian, whilst also having a rudimentary command of English, Latin and Greek, encouraged Catherine to take language classes. And though she attempted to learn German for three years, it was never a natural endeavour and she found language an area that she neither enjoyed nor excelled in. In fact, in most areas of study, Catherine proved to be an average student at best. She was an introverted character who found more interest in the creative streak that ran through her embroidery and her penchant for daydreaming. She struggled through school until the age of 15, at which point she took and failed her final exams, resulting in her leaving education for good and taking up an apprenticeship in a local silk and textile shop. While she did seem to be getting on just fine, it was also around this time in her mid-teens where Catherine began to notice some rather odd things happening in her life. Her mother had always had spiritualist leanings and had practiced table tipping with the spiritualist circles throughout Catherine's childhood. When her younger sister had died, her mother had claimed that she had seen a vision of an angel hovering over her bedside the night before she had passed away. Perhaps more like her mother than she wanted to accept, Catherine also began having peculiar and sometimes disturbing visions. One morning, she awoke to see a bright light filling her room, and in the style of an odd alien abduction-style fever dream, she said she had seen strange and unknown beings casting shadows around the walls surrounding her bed. Shortly after that event, whilst walking home with a friend, she felt that someone was watching her, and when she turned to check, she saw that they were being followed by a man in a long brown robe, similar to those of a monk. Somewhat panicked about the situation, she asked her friend if she recognised their pursuer, but her friend couldn't see anyone at all. In fact, Catherine had seen that man once before, when she was 10 years old, following an attack from a dog. At the time, she'd been walking home from school when the dog jumped out on her. Terrified, she froze on the spot, but before the dog reached her, it was chased away by the same man in brown robes. These strange visions seemed to occur periodically throughout the final years of her teens, and the man in brown robes would show up in her peripheral vision from time to time, but always disappearing just as quickly. Perhaps her most profound experience came when she was 18, when she had just returned home from a trip in the country, carrying a bouquet of flowers. All along the journey, she'd heard the whistle of a bird coming from behind her, but each time she turned to see where it was coming from, she could see nothing that would have made the sound. That night, she woke with a severe pain in her chest that was restricting her breathing and preventing her from speaking. In an experience that sounded a lot like sleep paralysis, she said she felt her frozen head lifted from her pillow by an unseen force that allowed her to push out a cry to her mother, who came to her aid by removing the flowers from her room. It turned out that the bouquet had included a variety of garden mint that had caused a respiratory reaction in Catherine, and once they were removed, she quickly recovered. The whole experience had been quite strange, but she would not find out its true significance until much later in life. By the age of 20, things in Catherine's life began to settle down, and the strange visions of the monk-like figure that had appeared sporadically throughout her teenage years 
became less and less frequent until they were nothing more than an inconsequential memory. Catherine continued to work hard in the silk shop and lived at home with her family, and aside from the death of her father, who passed away at the age of 75, she lived a fairly quiet 10 years, until her 30th birthday and her discovery of spiritualism that led her down a decidedly different path. It was during the winter of 1891, when she was 30 years old, that things took a turn towards the truly bizarre for Catherine, after borrowing a Pray L'Amour, a book about spiritualism, published in 1889. Written by Léon Denis, a French spiritist philosopher who lectured extensively throughout Europe, it laid out core concepts in the belief of the soul surviving after death. Written like a bizarro self-help book with a pseudo-philosophical and religious bent, it made its way around the globe, becoming a highly influential work that would pull a great many people into the booming practice of spiritualism. Catherine herself was clearly not immune, and after borrowing the book from one of her friends at work, she began accompanying the same friend to a spiritualist circle, keen to discover more. In spiritualism, circles were a popular way for small groups of people to come together and further their spiritualist development. The main focus for the group was on spirit communication, and so at least one member would need to have supposed mediumistic abilities, whilst the rest of the members were chosen with particular care in all manner of criteria, ranging from gender to their emotional qualities, and whether or not they had negative or positive electrical charges, whatever that was supposed to mean. Table tipping was one of the most often practiced rituals within these circles, which involved the groups sitting around a table and speaking aloud the letters of the alphabet. Similar to a Ouija board, the table would tip on a correct letter, allowing a spirit to spell out full sentences. Despite its tedious impression, table tipping was a massive success, and the circles that practiced them were a huge driving force behind the explosion of spiritualism. Likewise, table tipping was a key feature of the circle that Catherine quickly settled into, emerging herself in her newfound practice. Things progressed rather quickly for Catherine, and within a week, she was knocking out page after page of automatic writing during their seances. Excited by their new medium's prospects, the circle encouraged her talents, and by March of 1892, a month after her first meeting, she was regularly churning out advice from the spirit world. Soon enough, the new group grew to an unwieldy size and a split was formed, with Catherine taking the position of secretary of the new, smaller group, born from the divide, and by the end of March, she was chosen by the spirits as the official medium of the group and introduced to her spirit guide. March 25th, 1892. Eleven persons around a large and heavy dining table of oak with two leaves. The table is set in motion, and several spirits come and give their names and testifying to the pleasure it gives them to find themselves amongst us. It is at this seance that Mademoiselle Muller begins to distinguish vague gleams with long white streamers moving from the floor to the ceiling, and then a magnificent star, which in the darkness appears to her alone throughout the whole of the seance. We augur from this that she will end by seeing things more distinctly, and will possess the gift of clairvoyance. April the 1st violent movements of the table due to a spirit who calls himself David and announces himself as the spirit guide of the group. Then he gives way to another spirit who says he is Victor Hugo and the guide and protector of Mademoiselle Muller, who is very much surprised to be assisted by a person of such importance. He soon disappears. 
Mademoiselle Muller is very much agitated. She has fits of shivering, is very cold. She is very restless and sees suddenly, balancing itself above the table, a grinning, very ill-favoured face with long red hair. She is so frightened that she demands that the lights be lit. She is calmed and reassured. The figure disappears. Afterwards, she sees a magnificent bouquet of roses of different hues being placed on the table before one of the sitters. All at once, she sees a small snake come out from underneath the bouquet, which, crawling quickly, perceives the flowers, looks at them, tries to reach the hand of M.P., withdraws for an instant, comes back slowly and disappears in the interior of the bouquet. Then all is dissolved and the three wraps are given on the table, terminating the seance. All of this was a fairly rapid development for Catherine, who had gone from interested outsider to the medium at the head of a spiritualist circle in little more than a month. Her newly acquainted spirit guide, Victor Hugo, was the spirit of one of the most famous French writers, having authored international classics such as The Hunchback of Notre Dame and Les Miserables. Famous as he was, however, his position as a spirit guide for Catherine was not uncontested, and in August of 1892, around five months after the introduction of Hugo, a new spirit made a dramatic entrance, calling himself Leopold. A 35-year-old man, dressed all in black, Leopold claimed to have known Catherine in a past life and served as something of an adversary to Hugo, who arrived shortly after to protect Catherine from this new spiritual intruder. Failing to get the picture, Leopold continued to muscle in upon her seances, demanding attention from the circle and forcing Catherine into trance-like sleeps where she would briefly channel his spirit until the other sitters would shut down the seance to terminate his ability to communicate. For months, this game continued within the circle, with Leopold generally presenting himself as an antagonistic character who would speak to the group with a projected arrogance, appearing jealous of Catherine's relationship with Hugo. Oftentimes, this jealousy would manifest itself in a vindictive display of mischief, such as pulling Catherine's chair out from under her as she went to sit down at the table in a sleep state, as well as blocking all communication from any other spirit. Leopold wasn't always mean, however and he introduced himself as Catherine's protector and the man who had appeared throughout her teenage years and chased away the attacking dog when she was ten. Furthermore, he suggested that the circle Catherine was currently sitting in was a bad influence and that he was mainly being antagonistic in order to force a move to a more fitting circle. This process continued right through 1892, and whilst Catherine continued to attempt to run seances within her circle, they were frequently interrupted by Leopold. Eventually, in June of 1893, things came to a head and the circle was disbanded and when Catherine joined a new group in the winter of that year, Leopold had fully taken charge as her spirit guide. He's also completely changed his identity. At some point between the split of her original circle and the forming of this new one, Catherine had begun visiting one of the original circle's members, known only as Madame B, in order to hold private seances. At one of these seances, Madame B introduced Catherine to the story of Joseph Balsamo, suggesting that Leopold was perhaps the enigmatic Italian physician and occultist, also known under his pseudonym Count Alessandro de Cagliostro. An alchemist, psychic healer and mystic, Balsamo mingled with the high courts throughout Europe and was tentatively linked with the one-time Queen of France, Marie Antoinette who Leopold informed the sitters at the table during a seance in January of 1894, 
was one of Catherine's previous incarnations. Over time, Leopold confirmed this story and even began playing up to his new role, and one of the new features of Catherine's seances was the offering of archaic medical advice to her sick or disabled sitters. During this time, she also began having visions of eastern cities, gardens full of exotic plants, palm trees and various figures with heads wrapped in turbans. Before long, Catherine had fleshed out the story and revealed that not only was she Marie Antoinette reincarnate, but she had experienced another life even before that, as Simandini, the daughter of a 14th century Arab sheik, and the 11th wife of Prince Savralka Nayaka, who reigned over the kingdom of Kanara in the south of India. Another fairly grandiose and noble life, she had nevertheless been burned alive upon her husband's grave after his premature death. Largely, Catherine's life went like this for some time. She continued to work in the silk shop and hold seances on Sundays, never charging her sitters for the pleasure, instead pulling messages from the other side and informing people of their past lives as a form of spiritualist mission. At times throughout the week, she claimed to receive echoes of her communications with the spirit world in the form of hallucinations. She once had a vision, just before she fell asleep, of a flock of birds flying around her, as well as lingering feelings of inexplicable sadness or joy that would continue on for days after the seances were over. Otherwise, however, her life was more or less quiet and uneventful. Eventually, her mediumship caught the attention of Auguste Lemaitre, a professor at the College of Geneva who was interested in studying her mediumistic talents. Lemaitre invited her to hold seances at his house beginning in March 1894 and invited other professors, psychologists, thinkers and academics who were interested in obtaining first-hand experience with the spiritualist medium. It was through these seances with Lemaitre that she met with Theodore Flournoy, a Swiss professor of psychology at the College of Geneva with a particular interest in psychical phenomena. Flournoy was instantly taken with Catherine and invited her to work with him in a longer-term study where he could closely observe her seances and learn more about Leopold, Catherine's lives as Marie Antoinette and Simandini and of her processes as a medium. If it sounds like the foundation for one of the strangest studies of all time, it was really nothing to what would eventually manifest when Catherine decided that to concern herself only with historic earthly nobles was just not interesting enough and embarked on a spiritual voyage of interstellar proportions. Born in Geneva in 1854, Theodore Flournoy was introduced to the study of psychology during his time reading philosophy at university in Leipzig in 1879. At the time, psychology was mostly an area of philosophical analysis, but Flournoy was interested in the cutting-edge practices that had recently emerged in certain pioneering scientific circles that chose to instead treat the subject with empirical observation. In 1892, he established his laboratory and embarked on a series of long-term case studies in topics as broad as reaction times and synesthesia. Having been interested in the Society for Psychical Research, Flournoy had a personal interest in the supernormal, focusing heavily on the concept of mediumship, which he believed was an important area of study that would better help to explain psychology in all areas of the human personality. When he met Catherine, he wrote a short description of his first impressions of her. The medium in question is a tall and beautiful person, around 30, 
of natural complexion, with hair and eyes almost black, with an intelligent and open look. Of a modest background, and of irreproachable morals, she earns her life honourably as an employee in a commercial firm, and her work, perseverance and capabilities have brought her to one of the more important posts. He also gave Catherine the pseudonym of Helen Smith, a name which he took from his own daughter, which he used throughout the documentation of his study. He categorised the separate royal characters that she seemed to be channelling as either the royal circle for Marie Antoinette or the Hindu cycle for Samandini, and meticulously he documented their appearances, drawing out the complicated story arcs that Catherine weaved, sometimes over several years. In her phrases as Marie Antoinette, Helene has an accent characteristic of it. She recognises me vaguely, she has some allocheria, a complete insensibility of the hands, and a large appetite. She does not know who Mademoiselle Smith is. If she is asked to give the actual date, she replies correctly as to the month and day, but indicates a year of the last century, etc. Then all at once, her state changes. The royal accent gives way to her ordinary voice. She seems wide awake. All mental confusion has disappeared. She is perfectly clear as to the persons, dates and circumstances, but has no memory of the state from which she has just emerged. As Flournoy came to understand and grasp Catherine's historical narratives, a séance in November of 1894 threw a curveball into the study when a third cycle introduced itself to Catherine's already impressive spiritual repertoire. This one, however, was perhaps even more fantastical. Mademoiselle Smith perceived, in the distance and at a great height, a bright light. Then she felt a tremor which almost caused her heart to cease beating, after which it seemed to her as though her head were empty and as if she were no longer in the body. She found herself in a dense fog which changed successively from blue to a vivid rose colour to grey and then to black. She is floating, she says, and the table, supporting itself on one leg, seemed to express a very curious floating movement. Then she sees a star growing larger, always larger, and becomes, finally, as large as her house. Helen feels that she is ascending, then the table gives, by raps, the maitre, that which you have so long desired. Mademoiselle Smith, who had been ill at ease, finds herself feeling better. She distinguishes three enormous globes, one of them very beautiful. On what am I walking, she asks, and the table replies, on a world, Mars. Appearing to have undergone some kind of astral travel, Catherine went on to describe the scenes around her as she stood on the surface of Mars. Carriages without horses or wheels, emitting sparks as they glided by, houses with fountains on the roof, a cradle having for curtains an angel made of iron with outstretched wings. What seemed less strange were people exactly like the inhabitants of our Earth, save that both sexes wore the same costume forms of trousers, very ample, and a long blouse drawn tight around the waist and decorated with various designs. The child in the cradle was exactly like our children. Catherine's spiritual voyages to Mars were not altogether unique. In fact, as early as 1847, the American spiritualist medium and mesmerist Andrew Jackson Davis published his work that declared categorically that Mars was inhabited along with Saturn, Jupiter, Venus and Mercury. 
What Flournoy found different with Catherine, however, was the degree of intimacy in her reported visions. Over the following two years, she described in detail the daily lives of the Martians, their modes of transport, their social structures and gatherings, their family setups, and perhaps her boldest claim, she learnt the Martian language. For some time, Catherine's seances had been on a constant line of development, evolving in new techniques and experiences. In the beginning, her contact with the world of Marie Antoinette was simply acted out in a sort of mute pantomime, but as time passed, she began to bring in the modes and methods of speech to fit the time periods that she was supposedly visiting. Her accent changed and her vocabulary shifted, along with her posture and movements. After the first Martian seance in 1894, Catherine's spirit guide appeared to return her to her more earthly pursuits, and for 15 months she focused on furthering her stories of Marie Antoinette and Samandini. In February of 1896, however, she returned once more to the Red Planet and visited the dead son of one of the sitters at the seance. Much to everyone's surprise and considerable confusion, the dead man could no longer speak French, instead choosing to speak only in Martian. Helena rose, left the table and held a long conversation with an imaginary woman who wished her to enter a curious little car without wheels or horses. She became impatient towards this woman who, after having at first spoken to her in French, now persisted in speaking in an unintelligible tongue, like Chinese. Leopold revealed to us by the little finger that it was the language of the planet Mars, that this woman is the mother of Alexis Merble, reincarnated on that planet, and that Helen herself will speak Martian. Presently, Helen begins to recite, with increasing volubility, an incomprehensible jargon, the beginning of which is as follows. Michma, Michmon, Mimini, Chaunainam, Mimachineg, Masichinov, Mazavi, Patelki, Abersinad, Nevet, Neven, Nevet, Michininad, Naken, Chinutafish. Fortunately enough, his spirit was eventually able to travel back to the earthly plane, channel itself through Catherine, and once more gain the ability to speak French, which, as far as Flournoy was concerned, offered up an interesting opportunity to study and attempt to translate the Martian language, an endeavour he took to with a fair amount of enthusiasm. His first step down this difficult path was simply to ask Leopold during one of the seances if he would be able to translate the language for him. Sadly, Leopold confirmed that he was unable to do so, seeing as he didn't know the Martian language himself. However, he taught Flournoy a method of invoking another spirit within Catherine, named Esanal, who had been both a citizen of Mars and Earth, and so was well equipped for acting as interpreter. All Flournoy had to do was to place two of his fingers on Catherine's forehead whilst she was in a hypnotic sleep, and Esanal would recognise the call. With this new ability to translate Martian, Catherine's Martian story arc quickly became more grandiose. Her main contact on the planet, a man named Astane, turned out to be a mysterious, high-ranking Martian who routinely utilised a flying machine. Astane confirmed with Catherine that he was the reincarnation of a Hindu fakir named Kanga who had been a dear friend of Samandini. This overlap between cycles and visions became something of a theme as many of the individuals on Mars turned out to be reincarnations of various characters from Catherine's historical cycles. As she continued to visit Mars, Catherine grew closer to several Martian figures and elaborated upon their lives. 
Astonay often invited her to his home, a large box-like affair with trumpets on each corner and a fountain on the roof. His garden was furnished with a lake filled with pink water and trees with purple leaves. The inside was furnished with an organ-like instrument, and when she entered, she was greeted by his pet, an ugly beast with a flat tail, the head of a cabbage with a single large green eye in the centre, six pairs of feet and a body entirely covered in pink hair. Whatever this pet was, it was quite different from the other Martian animal life, which otherwise seemed to be slightly altered versions of earthly animals, such as deer and giant snails. On another occasion, Catherine was invited to some kind of dinner function, where she described the guests eating various flowers from square plates, whilst a ten-piece band played instruments shaped like five-feet-tall funnels. Perhaps unsurprisingly, over the months and years of Catherine's visits to Mars, Astane slowly began to fall in love with her. For 18 months, the Martian visitations continued and Flournoy strived to make sense of the Martian language that Catherine would haphazardly insert. For several months, he attempted to encourage her to begin writing the language, similar to previous seances where Catherine's arm would stiffen, she would request paper and pencil and announce an incoming message and would then begin to write in dramatic, purposeful movements, long letters signed by Leopold himself. During this time, she described a sensation of force upon her wrist, which she said was caused by Leopold grabbing it and directing her movements. Curiously, she did hold the pencil differently during her automatic writing sessions, resting the pencil between her thumb and index finger, as opposed to holding it in her usual fashion, between her index and middle fingers. Flournoy's requests were answered in August of 1897, when Catherine did finally introduce writing to her Martian visions. It was a little different to her previous bouts of automatic writing though, and instead of being directed by Leopold, she simply copied visions of symbols onto the paper before her. Helen, for the first time, writes in Martian. After various non-Martian visions, Mademoiselle Smith turns away from the window. It rained hard and the sky was very grey, and she exclaimed, Oh look, it's all red. Is it already time to go to bed? Monsieur Lemaitre, are you there? Do you see how red it is? I see a Starney who is here, in that red. I only see his head and the ends of his fingers. He has no robe, and here is the other, Esnar, with him. They both have some letters at the ends of their fingers on a bit of paper. Quick, give me some paper. What resulted was a page filled with six large lines of scribbled symbols looking pretty close to the writing of an infant. Within weeks, however, as Leopold had before, the Martian Esnar would take hold of her wrist and write similar symbols, but in a much more elegant hand. These pages of fine script proved to be a huge help for Flournoy, who then set about meticulously piecing together the Martian language. It was something of a fantastic stroke of luck that Flournoy found, in piecing together the Martian alphabet, that for each letter that existed in Martian, there also existed an exact French equivalent. This may have seemed obvious, given Catherine's first language was also French, and it may have lent towards the idea of fraud. But if Catherine had made the language up, she had done remarkably well. Across all of her speech and writing in Martian, the same patterns repeated themselves, and overall, it appeared very much like a real language. It was harmonious in sound, and the symbols were grouped into clear words, which defined clear, consistent ideas. In short, 
Flournoy concluded that the Martian that Catherine was producing was categorically a real, natural language. However, a language that is ultimately very close in construction to French. These conclusions by Flournoy appeared to support conclusions that he had already been fostering for some time. That Catherine was not a simple fraud, but was, in her trance states, acting out various characters associated with her subconscious mind. Growing weary of his study of Catherine's seances, Flournoy decided to introduce his theories to her in February of 1898. Unsurprisingly, neither Catherine nor Leopold was impressed. During a seance, Leopold told Flournoy through Catherine, who was asleep in her usual trance-like state at the time, that there are some things more extraordinary, and he refused to hear any more of it. Several months after this, Flournoy put it to Catherine directly, showing her his detailed analysis and translation of the Martian language. And just to rub salt into the wound, he also explained how many of her visions went directly against the known science of the atmosphere of the Red Planet. Catherine objected, stating that there was still much unknown to scientists and that ultimately she was sure that none of her visions came from within herself. Flournoy's provocations did, however, have something of the desired effect when a month later a new Martian character was introduced into the Martian seances in the form of an alien man named Raimi who promised to show her the world of the Ultra-Martian, a previously unseen area of Mars with a whole new landscape and language. The people of this land were more bestial than human, only three feet tall, though they had giant hands and feet tipped with sharp black nails. The hypercolour vegetation of her usual Martian landscapes were no more, replaced instead with desert scenes and houses of far simpler, box-like structures with no windows or doors. To Flournoy, this new vision was a direct result of his challenging Catherine's previous Martian visions. In 1898, Flournoy finally concluded his study of Catherine's mediumship abilities, recording the entire studies in his 1900 book, From India to the Planet Mars. The book was published to some academic acclaim, and though it was held up as a truly scientific study into the world of a psychic medium, his belief in the existence of telepathy and telekinesis that he had voiced in the book did foster slightly harder criticism. In what was, perhaps, a fortunate turn of events, given his growing weariness of his study of Catherine's mediumship abilities, Flournoy's laboratory burned down in 1899. Though the lab was rebuilt, he continued to study mediums only in brief studies throughout the turn of the century, before turning his hand to more down-to-earth psychology until his death in 1920. As for Catherine, she suffered somewhat after the publication of Flournoy's study of her mediumship from people who thought of her as nothing more than a fraud, though Flournoy himself defended her in several cases. Despite this, she found herself being funded by a wealthy American spiritualist in order for her to be able to continue to give seances at her leisure. Throughout this time, she kept up with the various narrative arcs, expanding upon her Martian arc and diversifying into the Moon and Uranus. Eventually, she began to isolate herself from public and began painting the Martian landscape she saw in her spirit visions, though after the death of her mother, she did move away from her extraterrestrial beliefs and instead she began to believe that Jesus Christ was her new spirit guide, turning her hand to painting images with heavy religious imagery. She died nine years after Flournoy in 1929. The belief of the existence of life on Mars continued at various levels of acceptability right up until the 1960s, when the scientific evidence of the Martian atmosphere 
began to mount up, causing public interest in Martians to finally wane. By the second half of the 20th century, the accepted view of the red planet was one of dust and of a cold, desolate wind, devoid to any alien life. Human interest has never entirely disappeared, as witnessed in the 1990s when the idea of life on Mars was briefly reignited. However, compared to the strange visions of mediums like Catherine Elise Muller from a hundred years prior, it was really rather tempered and quickly grounded firmly in reality. And whilst there are still figures today who believe they practice astral travel and claim to communicate with life on Mars, they are decidedly on the fringe and command nothing like the scientific interest of those 19th century mediums, philosophers and astrologers that once called for the same. So what was really going on during Catherine's seances? And just where was her Martian language ability coming from? Flournoy concluded that whilst there were many elements of Catherine's mediumship that remained difficult to explain, such as her ability to write Sanskrit, or from where her knowledge of all the minute detail that made up her various historical cycles came from, the most likely origin of the spirits that communicated with her was from within her own subconscious. For every element of Catherine's stories that seemed to check out, there were also anomalies. The handwriting of Leopold was markedly different to Helen's own handwriting, which might suggest one thing, however, it was also different to known examples of Joseph Balsamo's. While that might be excused by an ardent believer, somewhat more difficult to square away is the fact that, although Helene spoke with a thick Italian accent during the time she was channelling Leopold, the spirit was apparently unable to actually speak or understand Italian, choosing to awkwardly ignore anyone who tested the spirit's language abilities. Another mark against Leopold was his distinct lack of knowledge when it came to cold hard facts. Though he was pretty great at weaving complex stories full of drama and romantic detail, he failed to ever recall a single date or name that could be used to investigate his actual knowledge of the past. And whilst his knowledge of 18th century folk remedies was impressive, so was Catherine's mother, who had spent much of her life preparing folk remedies around Catherine while she was at home. Flournoy instead believed that most of the characters were fairly easily explainable when considering Catherine's own personality. He suggested that Leopold was a manifestation of Catherine's subconscious and the initial battle between Leopold and Victor Hugo over the right to act as spirit guide was manifest of a deep desire acting out as a form of self-preservation. He believed that her belief that she was the dead Queen of France reincarnate was powered by her propensity to gravitate towards the noble and grandiose and of her taste for that which was above the common people and her belief that she somehow did not fit into the mundane reality of her day-to-day life in a regular family. It was no surprise to Flournoy that in all of her reincarnations she was always a member of fairly high society. Throughout the long history of spiritualism there has been an equally long string of mediums associated with the belief who have been soundly proven as outright frauds. The case of Catherine Elise Muller, however, was eventually seen as something slightly different. At the time of its publication, Flournoy considered that Catherine was displaying elements of what he claimed to be polymorphic personalities. And though the research into such a disorder was almost nil at that point in time, his work with Catherine has come to be seen as one of the earliest documented examples of disassociative identity disorder, and opened the way for further studies, including those in the area of disassociative experiences, 
the subconscious mind and the psychology of linguistics in emerging languages. In particular, his belief that Catherine's subconscious had created some of her spirits for protective purposes has been preserved and built upon in modern psychology. For Catherine, her belief in her mediumistic ability was absolute and she rejected Flournoy's conclusions until the day that she died. Obscure as her story is today, overshadowed by mediums who possessed a greater flair for marketing or the willingness to pen their stories, highlighting them for future generations, it is nevertheless one of the strangest stories to come from the spiritualist boom of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and by far one of the most psychologically interesting. If nothing else, the embrace of her story by the surrealist artists of the time is a testament to her creative mind and ability to spin a world that was far ahead of its time. So that was the story of Catherine Elise Muller, which was a really interesting one, I thought. So let's get back and talk a little bit more about that after these short advert breaks. Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert Dr. Heath Avey. Season 1 relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. Welcome back. So yes, the story of Catherine Elise Muller. I, I thought it was really interesting that, I mean, I've read so many stories of um, like, like 19th, early 20th century mediums who are frauds, right? And and they're like 10 a penny, basically. And you, you come to address these stories, almost, the, you know, the standard position is fraud, right? So, so you, I almost always go into these stories with the idea that they're frauds right from the bat. And then it's like, okay, can they prove any different? Can they prove that they're not? But this story was so interesting in the sense that it wasn't really trying to do that and that the guy studying her was a genuine psychologist and instead of trying to sort of prove that she was a medium and that she was channeling spirits, although he was fully open to the idea that she might have been doing that, um, he instead was like fully invested in this idea that she was, you know, showing um, symptoms of dissociative identity disorder, which, um, you know, was really interesting. And, and in a way, it sets this story as really ahead of its time in, in two ways for me. It's like Catherine and her stories of Mars are kind of miles ahead of their time in many respects. You know, she was before War of the Worlds. I mean, of course, there were other people talking about Mars before her. And it was definitely, she must have picked up on it through, like, the fact that it was a talking point during those decades. But still, you know, it was very fringe. And to be sort of coming up with the stuff that she was coming up with was incredibly fringe. And so, you know, 
in in a way, she was kind of like this kind of wicked science fiction writer long before sort of science fiction had really matured. It was like I say, it was definitely around, and there were and there was the science fiction novels like uh, Percy Gregg across the Zodiac that we talked about in this episode that came out before her. But she's still like on that bleeding edge of kind of science fiction in a way, and I think that's why the you know like at the end there I, I mentioned that the surrealists took to her story because. You know, she was so far ahead of her time, really, in many respects. And then Flournoy, in many respects as well, was was quite ahead of his time as well. And, and you know, talking about psychology in this very, like, scientific way. Because up until then, psychology had been talked about in this kind of philosophical way. Um, and so he was really, like, pioneering this, this scientific approach to psychology. And the way he sort of studied her and just, discusses her different identities is really fascinating um quite difficult to read because his book was written in like 1900 obviously and it's not only is it kind of old outdated psychology and also very specialist psychology so even if it wasn't old and outdated it's already kind of above my head it's also like written in this like late 19th century hand that it's just like really difficult and dense to read through um and he had this really peculiar writing style anyway, where he just almost like word vomit. It's, it's, it's really difficult to follow. So there's all that um, makes it really difficult, but, but really fascinating. Um, I, I don't know if there's much really to talk about from my sort of opinions on it. I, I'm pretty much in agreement with Theodore Flournoy. Um, you know, I, I don't think she was astral traveling to Mars or, or channeling spirits from Mars. Um or anything like that. I'm I'm fairly on board with the fact that you know she she was making this all up. Um, but at the same time, I I do agree, and I don't think she was just a simple fraud. Um, there's there's obviously a lot more to all of her stories. Um, he studied her for quite some time, so her stories are quite in depth, quite amazingly in depth actually. But they do um, get quite bogged down in details a lot of the time. Um, but it's worth reading. He's got so his book is called From India to Planet Mars, and and you can get it online if you want to read it. It's um, actually available on archive.org, so you can read it if you wanted to. Um, and, but it goes that goes more into um, her uh, what he called the Hindu and the royal cycle of Marie Antoinette and Samandini. Um, and and so if you wanted to read more about that, I recommend that. But it also the thing it goes really into detail is is his. A- analysis of the Martian language, which is insane. How I it, the amount of work that he put in, he did enlist the help of a friend who was a, a linguist, I believe. Um, and and they did sort of like, but but just the amount of work that he must have put in, but it makes it quite spooky in that he was able to create, you know, translate it and and write out an alphabet and everything. But that means that Catherine genuinely knew that language. So she subconsciously kind of learned or created and then learned a, a, lang- a language that she was able to replicate over and over. And that's quite incredible. Um, you know, it, 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 it goes to show, you know, what the mind's capable of, I guess. And, and, and I mean, she always acted like she didn't really know anything that was happening in the seances she generally tended to so her seances were in this like sleep state right she was in like a sleep trance and then when she would wake up she would say that um you know she 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 didn't remember anything that was going on so she she had no like if you believe her she 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 said she had no idea what was happening but yet she was 
replicating these this language like over and over again. And she wrote a lot of letters um, in like Martian alphabet. It was it was quite impressive. And and what's weirder as well, and, and it was when you look at it, she wrote some. Like I mentioned, like the first one that she wrote was just like copying out I- images that she'd been shown by the by these by Astonae and whatever. And um, you can see there's clearly someone drawing uh, uh, symbols, and it looks really like an infant's handwriting. It is dreadful because you're not writing; you're copying, right? You are essentially drawing like that. But then the other handwriting, because there are like um, examples of the handwriting in this book. And um, the other handwriting that he shows is just like quite beautiful handwriting and it's smooth and it's got flow. And you can see that it's not, she's not drawing that. She's genuinely writing and it's it's really quite uncanny and, and quite spooky. Um, and, but I don't believe that anything strange was going on, uh, you know, but I can see how some people would have, especially back in, you know, the, the, the 19th century. Um, but for me, I, I don't think anything crazy was going on. I, I think she, she, um, I think she was, you know, probably did have this dissociative identity disorder. But yeah, really interesting all the same. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I, I would guess that most people sort of come to the same conclusions and, and see it as a psychological study rather than a, a psych, psychical study. Um, but yeah. If you want to get in touch and let me know your your thoughts and feelings on it, you're welcome to do so. My email is contact at darkhistories.com or you can get hold of me on on any of the platforms of our social media. They're all available in the show notes or on the website, which is darkhistories.com. You can also go there. Uh, you'll find links to the merch shop, the Discord server with our little community. Um, you can also find ways in you can support the show if you'd like to do so, uh, which is always um, you know, gratefully received. And there's also links to the books if you'd like to buy the Dark Histories books, which are basically just publication of all of my scripts up until now. Um, if you'd like to do any of that, all the links are in the show notes. Also, if you are a Patreon member, uh, stay tuned because I've got the draw for the T-shirt giveaway uh, for March uh, coming up in the little extra bit at the end of the episode. So stay tuned for that. Thanks very much for listening. I'll see you again in a couple of weeks from now. And until then, take care. Sleep tight.